for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us Julia, what a week What? Oh yeah, by the way you're Julia Clare and I'm Kate Willett. Oh yeah, that's true. Uh, we are but still ourselves and we're here again. And uh, what a week. It is currently 10.30 p.m. on Tuesday night. Um, we are waiting for the New Hampshire uh, returns to come in for the primary. Um, Actually, some have declared Bernie the winner so far. Oh, hell yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I know. I, I saw that he was, I saw in the polls that he was, um, and in the, some, a lot of the exit polls that he was in the lead. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be, I have a, I don't want to jinx it, but I think it's going to be a big night for our boy. Um, I mean, I, I think so too, but from what I hear so far, Pete is uh, doing better than expected, which I thought he would because I was canvassing in New Hampshire this weekend. And there were a lot of people that don't know that Pete sucks, which was really weird. They're just like, you know, oh, he's young. Bernie's very old. I mean, it's so weird because it's like we get in like uh, these, as we've talked about before, like these fucking giant online debates about like, oh, you know, the Twitter endorsement. I mean, the Joe Rogan endorsement on Twitter, you know, and then it turns out that like regular voters are just like, I don't know. It turns out he's 78, you know? Yeah. 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 And it's a, it's a jungle. Yeah. But, uh, much to your, uh, happiness, uh, Andrew Yang has dropped out. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The Yang gang has been disbanded. Yeah. Get out of my mansions forever. Yang gang. Um, Wow. Well, uh, good. I hope that he endorses uh, Bernard. And I don't think he will, but if he does, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, that uh, would be amazing. Um, did and- you see on Twitter that uh, a, a, like a Marianne person was thinking about did for, for Pete? Pete? And she was like, "All <laughs> she was like, do you have their number? I will call them personally. <laughs> yeah, this is... This has definitely been like a, a wild week for me uh, personally, if I can talk about it a little bit. Like, uh, yeah, I went to New Hampshire um, and I canvassed with all of uh, with a lot or with a lot of Rogoff's friends, and I published this essay in L about uh, how I feel that Rogoff's death would be prevented from Medicare for all. And man, I have been getting trolled by the. I, I just. Julia, before this election cycle, I, I truly could never have seen a world where I am uh, the nemesis of uh, older feminist women. And I just, I never thought that I would be enemy number one of uh, older female comics. I just truly did not. Uh, but apparently I'm a much hated figure for my uh, vocal support of uh, Bernard Sanders. And uh, <laughs> hopefully it blows over at some point because I do need to feed myself. But, yeah. you know. Well, uh, and for those for those of you who might be new listeners, Raghav was Kate's boyfriend, uh, and uh, my friend, a lot of uh, the friend of many New York comedians, and uh, he very tragically passed away last year. Uh, and I absolutely agree with Kate that his death was preventable. And if we had Medicare for all, I very much also believe that he would still be alive today. Um. And, yeah, actually, Raga was, like, a pretty big propelling factor in us. Uh, oh, boy. Both of us becoming radicalized, I yeah, think. Yeah. Sorry. Kate, I just was, I got a lot of feedback on that. Sorry. Oh, um, no worries. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, yeah, and I, I think that his, uh, his death was actually, uh, a propelling factor for us, you know, starting this show. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great piece. Everyone should read it. Um, a lot of cool people were talking about it in more positive ways. 
not negative. Yeah. And, oh it, is, it is weird. It's weird to focus on the negative, but yeah, I mean, it's just natural. It's like, you know, it's just what a like fucking speaking of reply guys, you know, it's like what a fucking thing to be trolled for. Like, uh, yeah, this other comic who supports Elizabeth Warren was like dragging me on Twitter for three days. And I'm just like, it was just a very uh, vulnerable thing to be trolled about. But it did seem like a lot of people responded to it more positively. Uh, and that was I would definitely... Say the over- yeah, the overwhelming reaction to it was positive. It's not, it's not even close to 50-50. It's like overwhelmingly a positive reaction. It's a great piece. Uh, a lot of people shared it. And uh, if you haven't read it yet, you absolutely should. Um, but... Um, in stupider news, I do want to talk about the Oscars. <laughs> oh, yeah, fucking Parasite won, um, which was amazing. Clean sweep for Parasite. Uh, best uh, best original screenplay, best director, and best picture. And I know the Oscars really don't, like, you know, they don't have any larger significance. You know, Green Book won best picture last year. We're not kidding ourselves here. But... Um, the fact that Parasite is literally about like class warfare and the very rich exploiting the poor <laughs> and that, and it's a, a Korean film at that, um, and it swept the Oscars. It did make me feel pretty hopeful for the first time in a while, like maybe the tide was turning. There's always political speeches at the Oscars too, um, Joaquin Phoenix had a very funny speech um, in which he just unintentionally funny. He just really lost the thread. He like went from talking about how we need to end racism to like yeah, how we need to stop drinking dairy milk. Uh, that is so funny. <laughs> and I, was I didn't like, see any of it. <laughs> I was like, babe, I'm you know, uh, I'm a I'm a vegan, but you are not helping the cause. <laughs> it's just like between him and like Moby getting a neck tattoo that says vegan for life and block letters. Like we just need to shut this whole thing down. I can't be, I can't have our reputation ruined any further by these, by these men. Um, um, but, speaking of Neil Brennan, like had a really oh funny day on Twitter. God. Well, yeah. he's, he's had a number, he has had a couple of funny uh, talk about the uh, comedian with bad takes. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, he's just been really combative. He also lives to kind of, like, piss people off, I think, which is uh, a personality type that I will never understand. Um, but he basically was saying that he didn't understand. He said that, no, he didn't say that he didn't understand. I shouldn't say that. He confidently stated that the central metaphor in Parasite didn't work because it was unclear who the Parasite was. <laughs> It was like, is it the rich people or the poor people? <laughs> and then he went on, everyone was like, it's the rich people. And then he was like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> it was, uh, it was pretty good. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. Having money rots your brain. I think that's what we, uh, I, and that's why I'll never have it. And that's, that's why categorically I refuse to make money. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. It's just... Because uh, I'm pure of heart. Uh, I don't know. I think, like, um, just emotionally, I feel like I've reached my, like, complete breaking point with this primary, which I know is not good because it's going to go on for several months. Uh, but, you know, it's just... I think, like, I think that I've gotten kind of, like, overwhelmingly caught up in trying to and this is relevant to what you were just saying like I've gotten overly caught up in like trying to explain the stakes of this shit to people who have a lot of money especially a lot of people in our industry comedy and stuff like that and you know it's just I've been like really trying to find thoughtful ways to convey what the experience of what is like of having your life deeply affected by your financial circumstances. Like for example, you know, Raghav passing away or just all the people that, you know, cannot get medical care, um, you know, people who are homeless. And it's just like, I don't, 
I mean, and we're in an industry where everybody is going to, for the most part, shout uh, blue no matter who on Twitter, which like, you know, it's you can certainly make the case that people should vote for the eventual Democratic nominee as like a you know method of harm reduction, because chances are that person will be like slightly less bad than Trump, you know, but it's like also I mean, I, you know. I feel like I've reached a point where I don't want to tell anyone what to do about that or not. If it's Mayor Pete, I'm not really sure that like I in good conscience could try to actively make people vote for Mayor Pete. That's Here's not to the, say I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I, I understand that. I, I also like, and, and I'm with you on that. I, here's, I just, I don't even consider maybe it's naive of me, but like the fact that Mayor Pete, did relatively well in Iowa and is doing like relatively well in New Hampshire, two very racially homogenous states, very white states, uh, doesn't scare me particularly. Like I, he doesn't have, he doesn't have the, uh, the volume of individual donors. He doesn't have a grassroots base. He's like, I, I know that like money can really go a long way. Obviously, Michael Bloomberg bought his way into the primary. I know that it can go a long way, but it can only get you so far. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. I think the only person that has a chance of winning a majority of delegates outright is Bernie Sanders. Um, but what I think could happen is I think that we could be headed for a contested convention. Um, Bernie Sanders would need to get to uh, 1991 nominees. Uh, uh, not, sorry, Bernie Sanders would need to get to uh, 1,991 delegates in order to just be the nominee. Otherwise, it is uh, chosen at the convention. And I, you know, obviously, uh, they're not going to pick Bernie Sanders. My guess is they would pick, you know, a, a kind of truly evil centrist person. So, I mean, that is why, I mean, and I've, you know, I've certainly said this before. I, I really think it's important for anyone with left leaning values uh, to get behind Bernie Sanders now and not just get behind him to volunteer for him, to make calls for him, to donate to him, because, you know, if the nominee is picked at the convention, they're not even going to pick Elizabeth Warren. Like they're yeah, going to pick, no. they're they're going to pick someone who is uh, really really bad and will probably lose to Trump. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I I think that I think our only hope here is that Bernie Sanders just wins it outright, and then that's that. You know. You know who also needs to drop out? Who? Tulsi. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if you if she believes everything that she has said she believes over the past, you know, you know, since 2016, she's been like raising hell about a lot of stuff. And I like, in theory, agree with a lot of her grievances against the, you know, the Democratic national structure. Sure. The Democratic Party national structure, rather. Yeah, okay, but if you actually believe that, and she was like um, uh, a Bernie steward in the past, so it's like, if you believe in what he's saying, then throw your support behind him, and she's, I mean, she's polling, she's polling in the single digits, but if she threw all of her support, her numbers could absolutely put his numbers over the top, like, in a, a decisive margin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people on left Twitter... State, have State by talk- state, not nationally, by the way. That's what I mean. Yeah. I, a lot of people on Twitter have been calling for Elizabeth Warren to drop out on left Twitter. And, I mean, personally, I think that that would be, like, not good for us because, you know, as many uh, of her supporters would go to Bernie Sanders... Um, certainly the same amount or greater would go to centrists, you know? And so it's like, she probably is pulling a little bit of support for, from Bernie, but I think that a lot of the progressive supporters of Elizabeth Warren have moved over at this point already or will in the next uh, couple of weeks, even if she's still in the race and she's not doing that well. I, I think that a lot of the people that are 
uh, with Warren at this point are not people who would vote for Bernie Sanders. Um, and, you know, we absolutely don't, yeah. we don't really want any of these centrists to drop out because the only reason Bernie's winning right now, I mean, I don't want to say the only reason, but one reason Bernie's winning right now is because uh, the centrists have their support sort of split all over the place. Pete, you know, Amy did a lot better than expected in New Hampshire, it looks like, even though we don't have the final results at this time. Um, you know, and it's like uh, if any one of these people gained steam, which seems kind of unlikely at this point, it would be not good for us and our cause, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly what the breakdown. It's so hard to to decipher those numbers. But but from what I've seen uh, for the most part, um, both in like my personal life and uh, certain polls like I I do have faith that uh, at least a hefty percentage of Warren supporters would come uh, would come to the left rather than to the center I have to believe that just because I think the walk from Warren to Buttigieg is so much longer than Warren to Sanders yeah, I think that the Warren Buttigieg people, they're not really voting um, based on <sighs> policies as much, as much as, like, I think a lot of those voters, and I talked to some of these people in New Hampshire, uh, what they like about both of those candidates is it's, you know, they're both very, uh, very smart, uh, and they have a technocratic approach, you know? So I think it's more based on, like, I think the Warren Buttigieg people are not, so much like, oh, you know, I really uh, want to have a Green New Deal and Medicare for all. They're folks who really, really want to have one extremely talented and smart individual, uh, which I do think is true about Elizabeth Warren. But uh, I, I can see why people think that about Pete. I do not. But I think he you know, certainly <laughs> present, presents that way. Um, I'm just well, saying, yeah, you know. I, I don't I don't I don't think of him that I think he is uh, very he's obviously someone who is very educated, but he he speaks in the most empty sentences I've ever heard in my life. Like he if he is smart, he's not using it because everything he says sounds like an inspirational word cloud that makes absolutely no sense it's totally incoherent it's just a bunch of like politician buzzwords no he's absolutely horrible um <laughs> and you know i but here's here's my like a uh, controversial take um i i think it's really likely that pete is done but i don't think it's for sure I think especially it's going to depend on how over the next few days the results of New Hampshire are spun. And, you know, I know that Pete, I know when we were canvassing, there were like a lot of like Bernie 16 people that had gone to Pete and they really are folks who like think that Bernie is too old to be electable and that Pete was electable because they declared him the winner of Iowa and stuff. So, you know, I mean, certainly, certainly it would be very likely that Pete is done. I mean, like, as we've talked about many times, like his support is almost all white and, you know, the Super Tuesday states are not. Yeah. And and it colors, this is one of the myriad things that is so frustrating about the primary system in this country is that the first two states to go are so unrepresentative of the country writ large. Yes, absolutely. Although I I do feel like it's worth making the point that um, in Iowa, at least I haven't seen the results from New Hampshire, uh, Bernie Sanders got like 43% of non-white voters and every other candidate was like less than 12 percent i'm not saying that there's nothing to glean from iowa i'm just saying that like those two these two states are like uh, in terms of the fact that they color so much of the the news coverage uh it's very frustrating because uh, the average iowan and the average you know, 
American of the 320 million people who live here, I don't know how much they would, how much overlap there would be there. Oh um, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, I yeah, yeah it's, like it's obviously, terrible that they go first. I mean, yeah, maybe everyone should just go on the same day. You know, I don't know. But. Honestly, yes. I, I okay. First of all, I mean. There are a thousand things that we could change to make this process easier and better uh, and more democratic. But yeah, they sh- absolutely should all go on the same day. Um, and they should all be ranked choice ballots and not closed primaries. I don't know. Like, uh, and we should do away with caucuses because they are as we as we talked about i'm not a fan uh and they're undemocratic but <laughs> um yeah i i don't know it's it's frustrating and and also so much of the news coverage affects like the the mainstream new, news coverage affects how people see the candidates i was reading this article today about the rise of amy klobuchar and the <laughs> chipping away of elizabeth warren kind of shows a contrasting narrative of how the media has spun both of them. Like Warren's support really started to tank when they, when there were a lot of polls published showing that she did worse against Trump in a national poll against Biden and Sanders and Amy Klobuchar, who has had been polling in so many States in single digits for whatever reason, continues to get positive attention from the mainstream media I mean, the, whatever reason is that she's a centrist and they love that about her. Um, but yeah, like it's really, I, I, and the fact that like the first story I heard today, the first story from my parents that I heard today was like, oh, I heard Amy Klobuchar was ahead in New Hampshire. They pull, they basically got exit polls from three tiny towns in New Hampshire where Amy Klobuchar won those three tiny towns and hours and hours and hours ago said that like she was she was ahead and she won those three and they they portrayed it as like exit polls show amy klobuchar in lead like they took this minuscule amount of data and blew it up to uh, kind of bolster her image and i don't the fact that that works on so many people, because obviously so many people can, can still consume mainstream news, and and especially so many people who vote still consume mainstream news, that seems to be doing so much more damage to... to it seems to be doing so much more damage to uh, more deserving candidates and so much uh more assistance to candidates who should have dropped out a long time ago oh yeah i completely agree yeah i mean i really feel like especially from canvassing it's really become clear to me that this media bullshit does like absolutely influence the way that voters think about this which makes bernie sanders assent so much more spectacular you totally know, the fact that he's totally. Been able to do it without i mean and it's all been volunteers and phone calls and i mean it's just it's it's fucking you know it's it's wild what we've been able to, to pull off so far and it's been a really really um it's been a really special experience to get to be part of it um yeah it was funny i when i went i went to New Hampshire with nine comedians this weekend and there was a morning where we were we all went to a diner and like <laughs> we had our like Bernie buttons on and uh we were like unfortunately I didn't even think about this but we were like loudly discussing polyamory because it is you know a topic oh, our friends. No. <laughs> and, and then and then one of the people was like one of the one of the guys was with us was like shut up right now and I realized that we should have like for who we are and how we act, uh, we should have absolutely been wearing Amy Klobuchar buttons. Yeah, saying that stuff. Don't worry, <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think that we lost uh, any Bernie Sanders voters. Uh, everyone in that diner was definitely voting for Trump. Uh, <laughs> so, 
but it was just funny. I yeah, know. man, New Hampshire's New Hampshire's weird. I went to school there for a few years, and uh, it's a it's a very like it's got a it's a state with like a libertarian streak. I don't know. It's it has it has big time Republican energy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and so, you know, I guess we should wrap up this uh, intro so we can get to our interview. But I guess I, w- I just want to say, like, you know, I know if you listen to this podcast, there's a really high chance that you're already volunteering, um, definitely at least contributing. But, you know, we do want to give some attention to these uh, congressional races. We're interviewing leftist feminist candidates. And today we have Doyle Canning from Oregon, who's really awesome. We had a great conversation about uh, climate action and homelessness, and she's awesome. But, you know, let's say we pull off one of the greatest historical feats of all time and manage to elect Bernie Sanders. Uh, We do have a real chance at returning power to the working class of this country. Um, And, you know, it would certainly need to, we would need a bunch of progressives in office in order to have the best chance at both passing Bernie Sanders agenda and also getting more progressives in office after that, like the more of these races that like the more of these uh, corporate money taking ghoulish incumbents get primaried out, the better. Right. Like, I mean, what happened with AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar in 2018? Absolutely spectacular. And we could see even way more than that um, in this next race so uh... absolutely and i i know that um that some of our listeners are are from uh, massachusetts and the the greater boston area and if you are we actually have a reverse situation uh happening there where the incumbent is good and the primary challenger is bad <laughs> um if you if you have any uh if you've any availability to pitch in some money or some free time canvassing, knocking doors, making calls for Ed Markey. Uh, he is the Senate author of the co-author of the green new deal. Uh, and he is being primaried by Joe Kennedy, the third who is, has millions of dollars in fossil fuel company investments. And he is bad. Uh, and he just, uh, I mean, he, the Kennedy family will not leave us alone. Um, but I really, that's a, that's a race that I'm afraid, like that is a seat that we cannot afford to lose to someone who has vested interest in keeping the fossil fuel industry afloat. Um, yeah. That's uh, that's all I would say about. Uh, Absolutely, cosign and um, yeah, you know, please if you can do something. You know, I realize that this makes me sound uh, insane to uh, liberal feminist comedians on Twitter, but I, and I think you share this belief, uh, believe that we are at a pivotal moment in American history, mm-hmm. and we will all look back and wonder what we were doing with ourselves at this time. And I can tell you that it feels really good to be uh, volunteering and making calls. And, you know, I think, uh, I think no matter what happens, um, we'll all be glad that we stood on the side of rights. And uh, yeah, you know, if, if, if we do end up in, in a situation where we watch a centrist lose to Donald Trump, don't we certainly want to know that we gave it our all and, yeah, you know, totally. and, but the, an amazing, uh, an amazing thing could happen. Like we could actually pull off like a historical, a historical thing. We could elect Bernie Sanders. We could fucking elect someone who is totally funded by individual donations and, uh, has, you know, a, a working class, uh, like kind of openly democratic socialist agenda, and you know, I, I know I would love to see it. I would love to. See I it. would also love to see it. And as I'm looking at the numbers right now, it is almost 11 p.m. and our boy is still in the lead. So I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> All right. And Kate, should we should we tell them about our our Patreon or should we? Oh, yeah. Uh, We're starting a Patreon. Uh, We're starting a Patreon because uh, basically um, 
you know, we want to put out uh, a couple episodes a week. We're going to do some bonus content for Patreon subscribers. Uh, I have uh, certainly realized that uh, my uh, vocal open socialism, I wouldn't say that it's uh, good for my career. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we would we're going to go twice a week. And, uh, if you can, uh, kick in some, uh, dollars and become a patron, that would be amazing. Um, yeah. So our, our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash reply guys. You can find us there. Uh, and you know, it would really, it would help us, uh, kind of keep up with, uh, the cost of the show. We would love to eventually be able to pay our incredible producer Genevieve. Um, so yeah, if you could kick in a few dollars, we would really appreciate it. Um, we are very sad and, uh, and we are too online and we need to be stopped. Um, but as Kate was saying, this, um, interview with Doyle Canning, absolutely restored my faith in in so much and uh i can't wait for you guys to hear it okay all right well uh we'll uh see you later we'll see you i don't know when we're trying to decide when our, our second episodes come out each week but uh, we, we don't know yet but yet so we don't know <laughs> we'll be here doing socialism we will uh, when- like it or not uh yeah i'm about to go watch uh some of the cnn debate coverage and i'm gonna go to sleep (laughs) julia is certainly more responsible than me um i'm just very tired (laughs) just yeah i i i have faith that our uh that our 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 gentleman will will prevail so yeah, I, I I think so too, but I don't know, man. Not to get too sentimental, and I'll I'll cut this off in like thirty seconds, man. It it fucking you know, even though sometimes this feels uh like it's against all odds, and even though a lot of neolibs are mad at us all the time, uh, I've never thrown down in my life with other people in this way, and I know that it's the same for probably most of you and man it feels so good to be trying to uh, abolish ice and get a green new deal and get medicare for all and work so hard for this with all my friends and with a bunch of people all across the country that i don't know and uh this is a a special time even though it's anxiety provoking and stressful and people are mad at us and call us sexist and stuff it's uh it's it's also really beautiful it is really beautiful Someone left a review that called us <laughs> sexist trash. <laughs> and I think that that's my favorite review. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was I was waiting for I was you know, I've been called a misogynist plenty of times, but I was waiting for it to happen to uh to you, Julia. So, uh welcome to the oh, Sexist Club. Happy to be here. Uh, beautiful. Um it's it's 2020. The fellows are back. All right. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. We are so excited today um, as part of our series uh, profiling uh, leftist female candidates running for office. Um, We are very lucky today to be joined by a candidate in Oregon's fourth congressional district. Um, Which is Eugene, right? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hi. This is Doyle Canning. And yes, I am in Oregon's fourth congressional district, which is kind of giant. It's about the size of Connecticut. It's all of the southwest part of Oregon. And Eugene is the largest city. That's where I live. And Eugene is a pretty progressive place from what I remember hearing. Is that the case? Yeah, Eugene is uh, home to the University of Oregon, so there are a lot of um, progressive uh, ideas in the atmosphere here, and it's also the home of Ken Kesey and where the Grateful Dead went to retire, so it's a very kind of countercultural mecca of the oh, United amazing. States. Oh, amazing. That sounds fun. Um, <laughs> It sounds like we yeah. would like it there. Yeah, all of our all of our boys. <laughs> yeah, you would like it here. 
Um, Lane County, where Eugene is located, is a county that Senator Sanders won in 2016 by 31 points. It's a very progressive pocket of- Oh, damn. So you got, you have a really, really, really good shot in this race. Yeah, we're in this race to, to win it for sure. For sure. Yeah. And have, we're building a really strong coalition of progressives all over the district. That is incredible. Um, one thing that uh, we read on your website is that your campaign is centered around four priorities. Could you tell our listeners what those priorities are? <laughs> sure. So I'm running to fight for bold and brave solutions to climate change. I've been involved in the climate movement for almost 20 years and now is the time to take a stand and take a stand against fossil fuels in particular. We have a proposed fossil fuel pipeline project that is planned to cut right through the heart of our district in Southwest Oregon. So I can talk a little bit more about that fight and how important it is to the people here and to our, to our race. Um, so climate change is, is an urgent priority as we all know the world's leading climate scientists have given us less than 10 years to transition towards renewable energy and stabilize our global climate system. And so that's one of the reasons that I'm running for Congress, because we need people in political leadership who understand the stakes and understand the urgency and are ready to fight the fossil fuel industry with everything that we have. I and, really agree. As a person that will be hopefully alive in 20 years ago, <laughs> I'm 100% on board with this doing something about climate change. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, we're also running to fight for an affordable future for Medicare for all and a universal single-payer healthcare system, which is overwhelmingly pop popular in this district and in Oregon generally. Um, and we are also running to fight for more and better and more affordable housing. Eugene, Oregon is a fairly small city, but is now the nation's capital of homelessness. We have more people living unhoused here per capita than anywhere in the United States. This is a crisis that is uh, acute and is spreading all up and down the West Coast. This isn't something that Little Eugene can solve by ourselves. The West Coast is the fastest growing region of the country for homelessness. And the fastest growing population is seniors over 65. And so we need bold solutions. We need change. We need to fight for housing as a human right. And that's why I'm running. That's amazing. I was wondering if you could speak to, you know, we talk about homelessness a lot on this show, particularly because I spent a long time living in San Francisco. So I'm really familiar with just seeing uh, the massive increase in homelessness in the past five something mm -hmm. years. Um, in the discussion around homelessness, is there anything that you feel that people usually leave out with regard to the causes or solutions? Mm. Well, the way I see it is that this is about an over, overall kind of crisis of affordability that's related to low wages, that's related to the high cost of healthcare, that's related to student debt and consumer debt that people have to take on just to pay for the basics because wages aren't cutting it. Um, and so, you know, it's about housing, but it's also about the overall overwhelming wealth inequality in our country and in San Francisco you know you see that so in such stark terms where you have you know these newly minted millionaires walking around who are working for these big Silicon Valley tech companies and the rest of San Francisco is pretty much left behind and the impact of that is felt up here in Oregon you know, Oregon is also one of the most popular states top two to move to right now. Um, and a lot of people are moving to Oregon from California because California has just become so insanely expensive. And so that pressure then puts pressure on our community. And, you know, so we can't solve this alone as the little city of Eugene. We have to look at the fact that 
these big corporations are paying zero dollars in taxes. You know, Amazon, Delta Airlines, General Electric, some of the largest companies on the planet paid nothing last year. And the costs for the rest of us just keep rising. And so that's why I'm running for Congress is because we need to build a powerful political movement that will take that inequality head on. Right. And something that I noticed on your website that you did such a great job kind of threading the needle uh, through was basically that so many of the large kind of institutional issues in this country, ones that we don't always think of as related, like, you know, gun violence and the uh, climate change. And as you said, housing um, are all kind of intertwined with corporate overreach and corporate power and lack of regulation. Um, And what has that looked like for you in your district? Hmm. Yeah, I think, well, I'm running um, in a Democratic primary, the first competitive primary here since 1986, when our congressman was elected. Can you say, like, really briefly who your opponent is? Yes, so I am running against the incumbent congressman, uh, Pete DeFazio, who is the chairman of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. And as relates to your question about um, corporate power, I think we need to, the reason why I'm running is because in a progressive district like this, um, to have a, a lawmaker at any level, but especially at the congressional level, who is comfortable taking millions of dollars over a 33 year career from the biggest corporations out there who are you know, actively lobbying to create this kind of wealth inequality, um, like that's got to change. That's got to be disrupted. And that's why I'm running because we deserve better. And I'm running a campaign that is 100% powered by individual people, contributors who are humans, not corporate entities. We love and that. <laughs> Incredible. And no that's, what it, that's what it's going to take. You know, I think um, many Democrats, my congressman included, will rail against Citizens United, but when it comes to financing their own campaigns, they're happy to take the corporate cash. And the only way to change it is to change it. And so that is why I'm running my campaign in this way. And that's who I am. You know, I've spent a 20-year career in community organizing. I've taken on some of the biggest, baddest banks and corporations out there, like Bank of America, Monsanto, Dow Chemical, the fast food industry, um, Nestle, water privatization projects, um, big pipelines and fossil fuel projects that's been my life's work and that's what I'll do when I'm in Congress. And that's, I think the kind of political leadership that is needed now in this moment. I absolutely agree. I know. Yeah. Julia's, Julia's on board for it as well. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm ready to, I'm ready to fly to Oregon. Right now. I was already ready to fly to Oregon. I know. It's very beautiful. And I, I am from California. And as you mentioned, we like to go there. So uh, <laughs> Well, all are, all are welcome to volunteer on yeah. the right. You know, this is a people-powered movement, and we need contributions, certainly. If you're inspired, definitely hit the donate button. Yeah, for Congress. I'm hoping our <laughs> listeners will uh, be donating to your campaign. Uh, I, yeah, I think, I think it's very exciting right now that it, it truly feels to me like in 2020, we could be on the verge of really completely changing our government um, in a profound way. I mean, we're talking to people who are running for office all over the country that are funded by individual donors. And I certainly never thought that I would see anything like this in my life. It's pretty exciting. It's such it, a great It is really exciting. Well. Yeah. Can yeah, it's a, it's a... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, can we talk a little bit about climate change? Because I know that you are really an expert in climate issues. And I, I just would love to hear your perspective on some of your most important priorities when you're in office. Sure. 
Sure. Well, I'll relate to you a story that I, uh, from a door knocking experience I had a few weeks ago where I was down in Southern Oregon in Josephine County where, you know, the, the average income down there is about $20,000. It's a very rural working class area and an area where Democrats usually just don't go. Um, but there are Democrats down there and there are young people down there who are registered to vote. And so we went to go talk to them and I knocked on the door and this man answers the door. He shares with me that he's a veteran. He shares with me that he's a logger and he starts talking to me about like how climate isn't real, climate change isn't real and kind of giving me this line that um, is oft repeated by fossil fuel industry backed politicians. Um, and so my campaign manager had the car idling in the driveway and I said, hey, you know, you see that, that exhaust coming out of the tailpipe? Like, where do you think that goes? And he was like, oh, well, it goes up into the atmosphere. And I'm like, right. <laughs> and it turns out that he didn't even believe the climate denial stuff. He had done a bunch of research into what it would take to electrify his log truck and figured out that like, it wasn't really possible and it would be really expensive. And he was real skeptical about Tesla trucks. And we had this long conversation about the Green New Deal and like, what would it actually take to move the country off of fossil fuels in a way that was just and equitable and um, would, wouldn't put people like him completely out of work. He was like, you know, I'm a logger. I don't want to be like contributing to climate change, but you know, what am I going to do? Go work at Starbucks? And you know, Democrats have said like, yeah, go work at Starbucks, <laughs> like traditionally establishment Democrats. And so I, I'm really excited about this vision of the Green New Deal that the Sunrise Movement and the Justice Democrats are putting forth that really marries a vision of economic justice with combating climate change. And I believe that we can do this. Our district has some incredible assets to kind of lead this transition. We have some of the most promising potential for offshore wind off of our off the Oregon coast. Um, we have these incredible ancient forests here that are as important as the Amazon in terms of the global climate balance. And like we can lead this, we can do this if we have the leadership that is willing to stand up to the big timber companies, stand up to the fossil fuel industry and fight for this vision and people are ready for it. So that's um, you know a big priority for me and that's why I'm running and it's really great to talk to listeners all over the country about what we're doing here in Oregon. Yeah. We are so we're so excited about that. I mean and that's such an excellent point because I think one of the things that Democrats have fallen short on in conversations about um, about climate change and about moving the nation forward off of fossil fuels is where do the workers go who are currently working in those industries? Because obviously we want to take the profits away from these very destructive companies, but we don't want to take the livelihoods away from hardworking people who mm. have been kind of trained in this their whole lives and have kind of solid union jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, for decades now, there's been a movement that's really centered around this idea of just transition mm -hmm. and um, labor movements partnering with environmental justice movements to say like, hey, th these industries are poisoning workers, they're poisoning communities, they're poisoning the planet. And like, <laughs> do we really need this? <laughs> in our life moving forward? Or could we innovate uh, a greener, safer way to make energy? Um, and so those solutions now exist. Like all of the technology that we need to move off of fossil fuels is available or it's within reach if we were to invest now in it. And the only thing standing in our way is a fossil fuel industry that now enjoys subsidies on a global scale of $9 million every minute, every minute of every day, 
$9 million for fossil fuels. If we were to invest that or even just a fraction of that in the transition, um, it would happen. It would happen very quickly. And that's what we have to do. I have two young kids. I have a daughter who is six and a son who is four. And in 2050, they're going to be in the prime of their life. And the world could be, you know, fallen off the cliff of climate change by then if we don't act in the next few years. And so that's, that's why I'm running now. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's certainly, yeah, I mean, I think for, you know, progressives, for socialists, we see uh, action on climate change now as really a life or death issue. And uh, scientifically, we're absolutely right about that. <laughs> and it is so, it, it can feel so frustrating to, uh, you know, be talking to more centrist Democrats. I don't mean like Mayor Tannen, I mean like our friends who don't see it that way. And I was wondering, like, do you have any advice for how to talk to people about climate change in a way that they take it seriously and don't kind of shut down the conversation out of fear? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in my district here in Southwest Oregon, people know that it's here. I mean, they see the salmon not coming back upstream. They see the Douglas fir trees drying up and dying. They see the, the droughts, the wildfires, like it's already happening. It's not some like far off distant thing. It's here. And people are afraid and also emboldened by the stakes. And so that's kind of what this campaign is about is, you know, it's time to take a stand is, is our motto. And we can't hold back and wait and see what happens anymore. This pipeline company, which is called Pembina, it's a Canadian firm, and they're trying to build this pipeline through Southern Oregon. It's been a project, it's been in the works for 15 years now. And it's really coming to a head. The vision is to build a pipeline that would go across 280 miles of Southern Oregon, across um, all the major rivers in the area and many smaller waterways, um, and would bring fracked gas from Canada and eventually from Colorado to the Oregon coast for export, like this giant LNG export facility. And that's been a project that the establishment Democrats have supported for the last 15 years. And um, the stakes for our climate now are such that we just cannot build new fossil fuel infrastructure. Like to support building fossil fuel pipelines at this time is climate denial. And it has the same result as more kind of nefarious Republican climate denial, you know. I completely agree. I completely agree with you. I think, yeah, I think it's, it's really irresponsible to even talk about uh, the deficit as if that's a pressing issue uh, when, which uh, one of the, one of the, the, the presidential candidates has been, uh, has been doing of late um, because do you mean Mayor Pete? We do mean Mayor Pete. Um, Are you a Mayor Pete supporter as well? Well, I have not endorsed any candidate for president. We really um, want you to break your endorsement here on our phone, guys. But yeah. um, if that's not going to happen, I completely understand. Um, but no, what I was saying is when, you know, when climate scientists have given us a hard deadline, mm -hmm. these major systemic changes that we have to make, these overhauls, I think, even, I think speaking about the deficit is lunacy because, first of all, I mean, obviously no one speaks about the deficit when they want to push through $1.9 trillion in tax cuts uh, <laughs> for the wealthy. Right. But right. Or invade Iraq or you know, any number of, of all big the ticket items. <laughs> All the hits in their playbook, um, certainly. But I, I'm interested in kind of what you're, you know, of course, hoping that, that you that you win in the in the coming election. You will have um, a great deal more influence on kind of how something like the Green New Deal might move forward. 
Um, what would you hope to see um, happen with that? And as someone who is who has really like studied extensively what a Green New Deal should look like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, you know, transitioning off of fossil fuel energy, obviously very important. The other aspect that people talk a little bit less about is the importance of soil-based climate solutions to actually um, pull down the excess CO2 that is in the atmosphere back into the earth. And there's this incredible machine that can do that. It's cheap, it's free, it's plentiful, and it is called a tree. Oh my God. I was what it was, and I've never heard of this, but it turns out I have. Wow. Yeah, trees are just incredible. They sequester carbon, they create oxygen, they create you know, shade, they're beautiful. I love trees. Um, I mean, really, for a, a leftist feminist podcast, we, we surely have not talked about trees as much as one would expect. Yeah. You know what? And that's uh, a pox on both of our houses for not, for not doing it more. Because yeah. we're, we love trees. I mean, stand for trees. Yes. Trees deserve it. We stand. My unproblematic fave, trees. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, so we have a lot of national forest here in my district that is full of incredible trees that are actually actively sequestering carbon at this time. There's a new study out of Oregon State University Forestry School that says that, like, you know, these forests in southwest Oregon and in the Pacific Northwest in general are as important as the Amazon for the global climate situation. And we have to start treating them that way. And through a Green New Deal, we could actually invest in reforestation and kind of fireproofing these forests in a way that is ecologically sound and creates jobs in our rural communities that aren't gonna go away ever. They're gonna last for generations to come. The other really cool things going on in carbon sequestration in addition to trees is other plants like perennial grasses and kelp um, and compost in general is an incredible climate solution that is cheap, plentiful, easy to create. Um, you know, we should be essentially carpeting the entire continent with a new layer of topsoil. And that's not difficult to do if we have, if we actually create the infrastructure for compost. Um, so, you know, Fossil fuel companies and billionaires like to talk about climate solutions, like putting tiny mirrors up into the sky to like reflect the sun. These, um, and <laughs> yeah, these freaking nerds. Yeah, and it's like you know what? Actually, like we just need to build soil. We just need to plant plants. Um, let nature recover, and the climate can stabilize. But only if we stop the pollution. We have to also do the, the, the decarbonization, the getting off fossil fuels. So I know we wanna stand trees, but there were a bunch of billionaires in Davos, you know, a few weeks ago saying like, plant a trillion trees, it's wonderful. I am for planting a trillion trees, absolutely. But even if we planted a trillion trees tomorrow, we kept using fossil fuels, we would still be in the same situation more or less. So we've got to do it all. The other piece that's really important to me is liability for the industry. And this is something I studied in law school with some of the country's foremost climate scholars in the legal field is really looking at how do we hold the 90 fossil fuel companies who are responsible for most of the pollution that is up in the atmosphere now liable for what they have done to our planet. And there's a lot of exciting litigation going on around this, uh, around the world. There's a case that recently came out in the Philippines from the Human Rights Commission there that's pretty exciting that basically says, you know, Chevron, Shell, Exxon, um, the major oil companies are responsible for human rights violations on a global scale because of the impending impacts of climate that are already going to happen um, no matter what we do at this point. 
And so that's an area where I feel like leadership in Congress is really important. I would like to see a kind of truth commission on the climate crisis where the fossil fuel industry has to answer for the ways that they deceived, misled, um, and lobbied their way into the situation that we're in now where we have less than 10 years to stabilize the climate. Um, that's been going on for decades. The United States government has known about the impacts of excess carbon dioxide pollution um, for, for since the 1950s, since the Johnson administration, and has chosen to deliberately and affirmatively support fossil fuels uh, with this knowledge. So there needs to be a kind of reckoning around that if we are to move forward, and I would like to be part of making that happen. We would like you to awesome. I really, I, I would love to. I would love to see these fossil fuel ghouls cry in Congress. <laughs> I know you can't. Maybe you can't say that because you're running for office. But yeah, I have. I have one more kind of question for you. You know, I imagine that some of these people listening to this podcast, you know, are not only excited about uh, electing progressives to office. I would imagine that some of our listeners are people who will hopefully even run for office one day. And I, I was wondering if you can say like just a little bit about what that emotional experience has been like for you. Is it terrifying? Is it fun? Is it exhausting? Yeah, it's, it's all of those things um, for sure. I, you know, I didn't plan my life for the last decade to run for Congress. This was not in my life plan. Um, it was something that, that kind of emerged as a response to the political moment that we're in and to the conditions and, and the situation that we're facing with our climate in this community um, and with the Trump administration. You know, the incumbent has been um, more interested in making a deal with Republicans on infrastructure than oversight for the last few years, and that's a problem. Um, so I was kind of came to this decision to run, um, because of the urgency of the moment and it was not an easy decision, but once I made the decision, I, um, the feeling, the sort of nagging feeling that I've had, um, since November of 2016, that somehow I needed to be doing more, you know, I felt like I am doing more. I am doing as much as I possibly can to fight back in this moment. And that's very satisfying. So it's very gratifying. Um, so I would, you know, encourage anyone who has that, uh, that vision um, to, to go for it. It's worth it. And it is exhausting and it is terrifying and all those things that you said, but it is 100% worth it. And every day I'm talking to voters and people who are donating five or $10 or committing to vote at the door and they are so thankful. This is a time where a lot of us are feeling um, hopeless. We're feeling fearful, like the Trump administration what they are doing, terrorizing our communities is, is terrifying. And um, to be able to be part of a movement that is fighting back and to be a catalyst for that, for, for hope and for, for power for our communities is in, it, tremendously gratifying. That's so amazing. And, you know, we're so grateful that you could take some time to talk with us today. Uh, is there a place where our listeners can go check out your campaign, donate? Yeah, if they're in Oregon, or maybe you need volunteers from other places too. Sure. Yeah. So we're at canningforcongress.com, and we're at Canning for Oregon on Twitter, and Canning for Congress on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we'd love to to have you follow us, be part of this campaign. Definitely make a contribution of any size. It all adds up. And thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm a big fan of your show. And um, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you so much, Joelle. We really appreciate it. Um, I'm going to go uh, ahead and turn off the recording.
but yeah, so uh, this episode will air on Wednesday and we'll tag you and everything. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the episode, we'll probably talk a little bit about whatever happens in New Hampshire and then we'll have your interview. Okay, sounds great. Your, your campaign sounds really... It inc- sounds amazing. sounds incredible and it's... Uh, it gives me so much hope to talk to people like you. Who I are feel the same way. Out yeah. there doing it. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for thank you for running. Yeah. Thank you thank so you. much. Um, yeah, you're the best. Thanks for making time to talk to us. Of course. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us